What's going on, guys? It's Pat and Cam, and we've got a very special episode. We're going to be talking about all things down there. Welcome to the Men's Health Unscripted Podcast with Patrick and Cam. We're focusing early on men's health, looking at your emotional, your physical, and your spiritual well-being. You're going to take care of that and make sure you keep on going. With Dr. Fenwa Milhouse, uh, co-founder of Down There Urology and star of Dr. Down Below on TLC. Dr. Milhouse, great having you on the show. I think it's been a long time coming. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Patrick. Thank you, Cam. Um, I think it has been a long time coming. We have chatted off, offline uh, multiple times, and I'm excited to get into discussion today. For sure. Yeah, we are pumped to have you on. Yeah, uh, I think there's been uh, there's a lot of crossover in what we do. Um, you are a urologist, and you talk a lot of, a lot about men's health, and you know having men come into your office and they're like, "Whoa, I get this female urologist." So, like, tell us a little bit about that, um, yeah. and just like kind of your experiences with men in general in healthcare. Yeah, that's kind of one of the uh, the joys a little bit. It, it's, it does it makes it for not a dull day in urology for me personally. Um, you know, I did this little video on TikTok recently where I'm like, the men who see a woman urologist, and it's like the different types of men and their mm-hmm. responses. Uh, the ones who don't do any, um, who don't realize and Google me before. Um, there's a little bit of a shock in their eyes that you can see a little bit or just a surprise. Um, Millhouse doesn't make you think you're going to walk in and see me necessarily. Um, and most of it, fortunately, most of my interaction with men, with my male patients has been positive, has been, um, great. I think even the ones that are a little bit surprised or maybe gun shy, which is completely understandable. Um, you know, maybe feel embarrassed, especially because of the things that I have to discuss with them often that has to do with their penis and sex. I think by the time, like within a few minutes, they realize that they're sitting in front of one, a professional and two, somebody who is there, um, as a compassionate ear, um, somebody who's non-judgmental, um, and somebody that they can talk naturally to. I tell my male patients, like, just talk to me naturally. You can use the terms that you want to use. You see what I'm saying? I think when they hear me say, use the terms like, just tell me, talk, talk to me plainly about your dick. You can say these words. It's not going to offend me. You know, that they, they're like, okay, okay, fine. Now I can be, you know, um, more myself and to try to help them. So. Oh yeah. I can see that definitely being a big concern because, you know, historically guys don't want to talk about health with any provider at all in the first place. And then it's kind of ironic because, yeah, I was the Simpsons was actually just on the TV here um, behind me. And, you know, popular character on Simpsons is Millhouse and it is a male character. So, like, it's kind of like what you think in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is kind of good that you're kind of open and allowing them to be a little more comfortable because that whole white coat syndrome is something that is kind of a serious issue when it comes to not, not just talking about conditions, but also like masking potential issues or causing like spikes in blood pressure, things like that. Yeah. So it's got to be a huge relief to walk in and your doctor's like, yo, what's going on with your dick? Like, that's got to be like like such a like opening statement and it's impactful in a good way. It's not like off-putting, especially for most men. So that's gotta be some like very good tools to be using. Yeah. You have to know your audience. And at this point, uh, I, not that I know, you know, you know, I understand enough about my male audience that 
you're right. For most men going and saying that is not off-putting. In fact, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Now I feel like I'm more comfortable. So, um, and that's important to me. I think for any urologist who does this, especially if you're dealing with men's sexual health, you kind of have to have the type of personality that people feel open enough to talk to, talk to you about their dick, you know? So, um, you can't be too, uh, you can't take yourself too seriously and you can't be socially awkward when you're talking about this stuff. For sure. I, I know, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, I don't, I don't want to go to, especially the urologist. I mean, I have older clients and immediately associating with the urologist are like, somebody's going to stick something in my pee hole. I don't like it, you know? And, and I think that to a degree in urology, there's probably a lot of poking and prodding and the yes. and patients yeah. are, they just don't want it. Right. Um, so, you know, what are, what are some ways, you know, speaking of making patients more comfortable, what are some ways that you get your patients more comfortable with, um, maybe uncomfortable exams procedures and exams. Yeah. Um, first of all, you have to, um, prepare them mentally. I, I talk to them about what's coming. Um, most of the time we don't necessarily have to do the poking in the pee hole the same day that I meet them. So they have, they have some time to, to think about it, which me maybe means that some of them don't come back. Um, and I explain to them that, you know, it's going to be quick. We use lots of lube and I try to be gentle. Okay. Um, this isn't just another, I don't want, I don't want the patient to at any time feel like they're just another number and I'm not gentle. And I take, I like listen to body cues. Um, I talk throughout the whole thing. Okay. Now I'm going to do this to your body. You see what I'm saying? Now I'm going to put this here. I'm going to do this. It's really important that people know what's happening to their body so they can make a, de a decision throughout the procedure. Somebody might say midway through, like, stop, don't want this. And I have to, I have to oblige. Um, the other good thing is I have really, really good staff. My uh, medical assistant just has a good way of like making patients feel comfortable. So she, it, you know, it, it's a team effort here. You know, there's never just me in the room when these things, most of these pokings are happening. And so my, t my team member, um, or medical assistant in most cases, like she's really helpful in adding to making patients feel comfortable. Uh, we do things like play music during, okay, I'm going to put some, you know, put music on. Uh, we have TVs in our room too. So we really try to create a vibe that is like as relaxed as you can be for something like sticking a camera in your pee hole um, for the patient. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That's quite like a drastic change of pace. So like uh, for those of us and our listeners who are military, we call it punching the bore. And um, typically they threaten you with it more often. And it's not like a comfortable thing. They're not like, oh, we're just going to be gentle. We're going to be nice. Like you'll be in the you'll be in the squad bay, the, the sick bay for it. And it's kind of like a um, cliche, like emergency room where you have the bed. There's like mm -hmm. six beds in an open room. They have like the little curtain pulls and they don't close the curtains all the way. And they'll invite another corpsman over during it. It's it's an awkward thing, but it, it's it's a you know good draft comparison um, when it comes to uh, civilian stuff compared to military things. So that's got to make people feel a lot more comfortable, especially when you're not talking to them like, yo, you dirty motherfucker. This is your fault. I got to do this. <laughs> I'm sure that definitely helps. <laughs> that helps a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> 
So what are, um, so when you first meet a patient, like what are some things that you, I guess, specifically with men that you might encounter and some hiccups, maybe for our viewers that are hesitant to go to the urologist or might know somebody who needs to go, what are some things that you would tell them to kind of encourage them, you know, maybe things could get better if you catch it early, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing, I think that two things, um, that are important in men's health that we see in urology that I think are important. One is prostate cancer screening. Um, November is next month. I think last month was September. Last month, September was prostate cancer awareness month. And so with the prostate cancer screening, it's the dreaded rectal exam that I think is really the big component of like what puts fear in some men about um, going in for that. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to first tell, uh, encourage men that it just starts off with the conversation. Like you're not obligated to do anything, but it's important to at least be informed what you don't know can hurt you. Okay. Um, and so you don't want to be uninformed simply because you're like, I don't want anybody sticking their finger in my butt. Fair. Let's sit down and have a conversation. And so when I, before I, do any prostate cancer screening, it's a conversation. Um, And then I explained to them, you know, part of it is a rectal exam, but part of it is a blood test. And I would say 90% of them, by the time we've had the conversation, realize the utility and are like, let's do, let's proceed. Maybe 10% of them said, you know what, doc, I don't want to do the rectal exam. And that's fine. That's, that's okay. I'll just do the blood test and I'll meet you where you are. You know what I'm saying? You have to meet the patient where they are. So that's one aspect. The second one uh, in my field that tends to be um, a a common embarrassing issue that may have um, men struggling to go get seen is erectile dysfunction, you know, um, or, you know, problems in the bedroom, really, uh, whether it's premature ejaculation, erectile dysfunction, that sort of stuff. And you do want to come in, particularly with erectile dysfunction, you do want to come in earlier than later. Erectile dysfunction is a barometer for your heart. I I did a YouTube video called Morning Wood is a Vital Sign. Essentially, what I'm saying is like your blood flow into your penis is a representation of your cardiovascular status. And erectile dysfunction is usually one of the first signs potentially of cardiovascular disease. In fact, it's an independent risk factor. Just having erectile dysfunction with, you could be marathons, you know, runner and, and, and healthy, but just having erectile dysfunction is a risk, is an independent risk factor for having heart disease. So you want us to not only treat it soon so that you can get back to enjoying a full sex, you know, life and having sexual wellness. Um, But so that maybe we can change the course of would-be cardiovascular event, you know, a would-be heart attack or a would-be stroke um, from occurring. Yeah, I mean, that's something we bring up a lot too, that uh, the barometer part, especially when we have our community outreach kind of situations, because we do want to, you know, we don't want to ask people how the boners are, but we definitely want to make them aware that that is a good thermometer to kind of let you know if that weather is going to be problematic or not for you mm-hmm. potentially soon. Right. Yeah. And we, we actually have seen, I, I know when we were in school, probably more so, and Cam was in retail uh, right out of school, but 
I saw multiple situations where young men, like 25, 27, were coming into the pharmacy or I had friends that were nurses and they were coming to their PCP saying, I've got ED. And you're Mm -hmm. thinking, well, you're way too young. Mm -hmm. Um, And it turns out that they actually have a, maybe not a porn addiction, but they're watching quite a bit of porn and things Mm -hmm. like that. And they can't get it up. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you kind of approach a situation like that where their erection probably works, but now Mm -hmm. this is like a a mental health issue. Yeah. So you're, you're bringing up psychogenic erectile dysfunction. So within erectile dysfunction, there's organic, which means that you literally, there's some sort of a blood flow issue. Um, biggest, uh, biggest culprits or contributors, high blood pressure, diabetes, smoking, that sort of stuff. But then there's psychogenic ED. Psychogenic ED is kind of like performance anxiety. Some in, in partnered intercourse, whatever that looks like, it doesn't, it doesn't want to come to life. It doesn't happen. Um, and it could be from a slew of, um, and it's from a potential slew of psychosocial, um, issues or causes, right? Um, it could be the person that you're partnered with. You don't really like, you're not getting along with their, the other person in the bedroom. Okay. The relationship sucks. You don't trust them. Um, you don't aren't attracted to them. You're not aroused. Okay. There's that there's, you know, you could be, uh, internally depressed, have self-image issues, um, anxiety, uh, anxiety, not just performance anxiety, but just general anxiety. So that could be issues. Um, you could have, you could have, uh, be grappling with, um, your own negative issues around sex. Like if you were raised in a super religious, um, uh, household and now you're grappling with what does sex look like as an adult? I mean, these are just examples A uh, porn. It's interesting. I have seen patients, a few patients like this, that, you know, porn, I'm, I'm of the generation. I'm a, um, millennial, what is it? Ex-genial. So I'm like, I'm like a older millennial. Mm-hmm. So porn growing up for us, you had to go and get a VHS or a DVD. <laughs> like it wasn't at our fingertips like it is now. Right. Okay. Porn is at your, our fingertips, which means it's at the fingertips of young of boys. Okay. Of developing young individuals who have not yet had intercourse real, you know, uh, in up close in life. And so there is data that shows like early porn watching and um, exposure can be harmful for uh, our youth in particular. So you take a young man or a young individual who has been watching porn to masturbate since they were 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, 12 years old. And we know that porn is a typically an unrealistic representation of what partnered sex is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, It's entertainment, right? You know, so you've never, you've never engaged in real partnered sex and the, you get, you, you get off just fine. You get a great erection, watching porn, masturbating and that sort of stuff. But when it comes to like real partnered sex, which we know can be a little bit awkward, there's awkward pauses. There's the repositioning your, you know, yourself. There's, you know, it's not like, you know, um, like porn, it can be potential cause of psychogenic ED. And I actually definitely have encountered a few patients like that, young men 
and um, have counseled them to, that is a great, I mean, for multiple psychogenic EEG, that's when you hope that your urologist um, advises you to see sex therapy. There are professionals, there are licensed professionals. It's not hocus pocus. There's licensed professionals that deal with a slew of sexual dysfunction, mental health issues, and it can do drastic um, improvement in your quality of life. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad. That's uh, good to hear. That's mm -hmm. like some of that good intraprofessionalism that yes. is luckily starting to become a big deal nowadays. Uh, you see a lot of the older doctors, uh, older professionals, and they don't really kind of, they try to keep it in their own lane. They won't mm -hmm. kind of refer or kind of go anywhere else. So it's really good to see everybody's kind of working together. Because um, I've actually had this conversation recently with some people where they were kind of like, oh, the sex, the you know, sex therapists are just kind of saying the same thing. Like everybody would already know, everybody should know. And it's it's kind of like you have to wake them up like, no, like there are things that some people aren't aware of. There are mm -hmm. some things people don't talk about or don't feel comfortable. So if you can get them to a professional who's kind of willing to break that ice, kind of shake them down a little bit and kind of get into that hard conversation, it does have a very beneficial outcome for these patients and it is going to help them improve their lives improve their relationships mm -hmm. and hopefully keep them away from these further conditions because if they continue to ignore them they're going to obviously you know take more effect and then down the line they're going to be depressed and then they're going to add on you know maybe weight issues obesity problems which will lead to more heart and diabetes conditions because it can snowball really quickly mm -hmm. uh, so it's definitely one thing we always want to push on on the cast here that like yeah this interprofessionalism it's definitely not new, but it's definitely becoming big light. And that's phenomenal. Yeah, more of us in medicine, especially, I mean, in urology that deal with it need, need, needs to, we need to do better. We have traditionally, like you said, not really uh, been good at treating these problems holistically. And there are numerous conditions that I treat where I'm like, therapy, 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 whether it's mental health therapy or physical therapy or all, you know, both. Um, and so I really um, have got, I've taken a lot of time to get to know the sex therapist, to get to know the physical therapist in and around me. I want them to know my face. I want to know their face. I want to be able to tell a patient when I'm referring them, this is Dr. Da 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 da. This is such and such. She's licensed. She's, um, I, I've, I know her personally because I've interacted with this person. So it's an important part of our job. Yeah, that's got to be a good uh, uh, relieving feeling with your patients that you have an, a you know nice relationship with the person that you're referring them to. I've been to docs with some of my clients where they're like, well, you can go to one of these three places and just let them know we sent you kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's like, it's okay. You might get a good service, but you know them knowing, all right, Dr. Milhouse knows where I'm going in, mm -hmm. and, and you've, you know, done a good job with them already. So the next professional is going to be able to pick up right where you left off and, and handle that stuff, which is really awesome. And I'm yeah. glad you, you, um, refer to the mental health side of it too. It's like such a big deal now. And, and especially with men that we've noticed guys, you know, a lot of guys like to say they're really tough and all that kind of stuff, but really deep down, I mean, Something that's embarrassing that might not seem like a big deal can really affect us. I mean, guys throughout their whole lives. I mean, if you think about it, when we're like, you know, 12, 13 year old kids in middle school, like, how do you get a kid? Like, oh, you got a little dick, you know, stuff like that. And then that that kind of stuff 
you know, even when you're so small, it weighs on you. And then you get to be an adult and let's say you have a embarrassing interaction, all that stuff comes back. So mm -hmm. it's so good that you refer your patients to, to mental health help. Yeah. As we move on a little bit, I know that you talk a lot about, and you know, we're talking men's health. So we've got a little bit of a niche and then even more niche. Well, it's uh, on your Instagram page. I know you've discussed the racial disparities in healthcare. Um, let's talk a little bit about that, what that means to you. Um, just so our viewers kind of become a little bit more educated on it. It's not something that we've hit on. We know it exists, but um, you've really ha had a lot of outreach on social media. So thought you're a great person to ask. Yeah. So COVID kind of highlighted, it was kind of um, a reckoning of medicine far, far, far overdue uh, because it really exacerbated um disparities, um, racial disparities and uh, black and brown individuals. Um, and it made us look at medicine much more critically and really think about the vast array of medical conditions and um, the way we treat um, medical conditions and how there are healthcare disparities. And, uh, you know, um, a disparity is a disproportionately usually negative outcome that is based on um, some demographic um, characteristic um, that shouldn't, you know, shouldn't exist. Okay. So when we talk about disparities in white and urology, there, there are uh, numerous, but the biggest one is prostate cancer. Okay. Black men are over two times more likely to get diagnosed um, and to die of prostate cancer even amongst low grade or early stage prostate cancer, black men are less likely to get definitive curable treatment um, than uh, white men. Um, so we'll talk a lot about that. Um, there are other disparities. Uh, the black men are after prostatectomy. So after a cancer procedure to remove the prostate, black men are less likely to get treatment for their incontinence. Incontinence is uh, leaking urine unintended, which can happen after prostatectomy in a small proportion of, of individuals. Um, and there are treatments that we can do for it. And black men are less likely to get offered incontinence treatments. Um, and I believe same goes for erectile dysfunction after prostatectomy. Um, so I am a black woman married to a black man for one, and uh, I have black children. And so I'm personally invested in healthcare disparities because it directly affects the community that I relate to, the community of people that look like that look like me um, or my husband. Um, and, and so there's, it's, it's, it would be, it would, I would be doing a disservice if I did not, you know, take on that mantra. Here I am, um, as a black urologist, uh, which is, um, which is a, a small, small proportion in and of itself. Um, and so bringing awareness to, to it, uh, trying to educate. I come from a standpoint of, I want to educate the public. I want to empower the public. 
I want. And so that's why I've made myself so visible. Um, part of my motivation for being your favorite urologist, which just kind of developed, I wasn't a planned out thing, but I was like, I know I don't look like your typical urologist and I want people to see that. Um, and I want people to be able to relate to who I am, that I'm not this high and mighty doctor, this fancy schmancy urologist, this hoity-toity surgeon, but I am a human. I am, uh, and I want them to, when people can relate first to who you are, then they are more likely to listen. They're more likely to take your advice. And I think a lot of the biggest things, especially in the black community in medicine is that it, the medicine has not earned our trust. Um, and so breaking, you know, getting the trust back uh, for good reason. To, I mean, medicine has really done black people dirty, but getting the trust back with the black community that we serve in medicine is going to take a, um, a lot of time. And it's going to take people like me who can relate um, to the community. Uh, and I, and I see that not only in my social media interactions, but I see that in my patients. I have plenty, I have several patients who like, I found you, I sought you out because you look like me and I feel like I can talk to you more openly. Um, I had a patient ask me a question. It was a very complicated patient, this black man, very complicated. You see me for a second, an opinion. And he asked me a question and I was like answering the question. He said, you know what, doctor, I was too I didn't feel comfortable asking the question to the other doctor that he saw for this who was non-black. He was just like, I didn't feel comfortable. I felt like I was, they were look kind of talking to me condescending. And so it didn't make him feel comfortable asking that question. And here I am saying, and I'm telling him, you, you know, I want you to know going forward, I want you to ask any question that you feel like you need to ask to make the decision. This is your body. Okay. And before anybody does anything to your body, I want you to ask any question that you feel like it, whether you feel, whether you feel it's dumb or, or think it's dumb or not, or they, you don't care what they think about it. But it's sad that that is the way that individual felt with one physician who was a, 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 a great surgeon, a great urologist, but just different type of, um, different type of interaction well yeah I mean, so do you find it more uh more of a of an issue like when you have your patients come in um do you find it to be like doubly more of a problem when they're like males and then they're coming in with like that race disparity as you were saying you know where they've spoken to somebody else is it are they more reluctant at that point or does it seem to be not necessarily more of a male problem but more of like the disparity side disparity uh, okay. I'm, I I want to make sure I understand your question. So are you saying, is it more of a problem? Because like is of, hindrance is probably not a better word hindrance. Like, are they more reluctant to talk to you? Like, is it like a compounding thing? Do you feel like where it's like the male side, they don't want to speak to his doctor already. And then now, like, as you say, they're looking for you because you have the similarities um, with that. When it comes to black men, like my experience is they're very comfortable seeing me. The, the gender has not been, they, they're like, it's not, uh, it's not nearly as important. It's not nearly as important as I feel seen by this black provider and I'm black. That is more, I think, the potential roadblock for them. And that is the, based on experience of 
being a black man in, in America or in, med in medicine. So for my, my interactions with black men tends to be more instant comfortableness. Oh. You know, I'm, you know, more instant comfortableness. Um, and which highlights the need that we need more diverse workforce, more diverse physicians, more diverse professionals, medical professionals, because until the day where it doesn't matter what you look like and black, you know, people feel comfortable, brown people, you know, Muslim people, gay people feel comfortable sitting in front of anybody. Um, we need to make sure that we have a representative workforce that can meet the needs of our diverse and ever increasingly diverse patient population. For sure. I know towards the end of pharmacy school, we had gotten a lot of education. And I think our teach, like our professors had said, like we had LGBT education, multiracial education. So we had different breakouts where we worked with the medical students um, and had just instructions from people that were in the profession of different ethnicities and background and some hiccups and things that they've kind of experienced along the way. And then also talking from patients. And so I think like we were really pumped that we got the education mm -hmm. while we were in school and made aware of it instead of a lot of people are just out there and then they're in this little, you know, bubble that is like medical or pharmacy school that kind of looks a certain way. And then they get out there and they're like, oh crap, like this is very different than what we were taught. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of, there's a lot of unintended harm being done from a lack of awareness of uh, cultural competency awareness. Um, and that isn't just racial, right? I, you know, religious cultural competency, um, gender identity and um, sexual preference, cultural competency. Um, uh, and so there's a lot of unintended harm being done from people who, from med medical physicians who are just, who are not trained, who are unaware uh, that these exist. Um, it needs to be in the agenda curriculum of every healthcare professional school um, that interacts with, even if you don't directly interact with patients, it just needs to be a part of the curriculum. Absolutely. Because, mm -hmm. um, I mean, just as a student pharmacist, I remember having, you know, patient situations that I never even knew existed, you mm -hmm. know, I'm like straight up. I was like, oh, okay. And then you kind of look and you're figuring it out. And then you have to ask the regular pharmacist, like I'm confused, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and just as a student though, I mean, we were exposed to it in real life situations. So, you know, hopefully medicine changes quite a bit. And um, do you think there's an issue with like what questions to ask, you know, like having understanding or is it, you know, some docs just flat out might not have great bedside manner. They come in, they treat you like the guidelines and then they get out the door. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's probably a few different reasons that it's like this and anything you can, you know, pinpoint. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, I think we can relate to being in a conversation where we're talking to somebody who already feels like, you know, uh, you know, they have a, a higher power than us. Like when you see the doctor, you're, you're talking to this professional, right? And so you kind of feel like you're there to learn. They're there to teach. 
which is fair. But if you are in this, if the environment feels like I'm being talked down to versus talked included, you see what I'm saying? You're not going to be engaged. You're not going to um, get more information out of that person. Okay. You're not going to ask those questions that are probably frequently asked questions, but you're not going to ask them. You're not going to get, so you're going to leave that um, scenario less informed than somebody who feels like they can be a part of the conversation with their physician versus being talked at. Okay. You're going to be less informed. Um, And there is inherent bias, subconscious bias. Okay. We are humans. Okay. So study, I mean, time and time again, um, and I took a, what's it called? A implicit bias test. And I was found, I was biased. Uh, I was biased against, it was like black women versus white women. And it was like, I was biased slightly against black women. And you think you're a black woman. How are you biased against your own? Well, because I'm a, we are a product of our heteronormative male predominant, white predominant world culture. You see what I'm saying? Including me. You know, and so it tests, it's a really, uh, it's hard by Harvard. They have a a ton of these implicit bias tests and they're free and you can easily take them. And it's enlightening because the, in the subconscious thoughts, when you see somebody that looks a certain way, that, that does dictate your actions. Am I going to be shorter with the patient that I deem less intelligent that I deem is, oh, well, they're not as savvy. They're not as intelligent. So I'm just going to dumb it down for them and not give them the full information. You see what I'm saying? I mean, that probably happens all the time in uh, uh, black and brown interactions with women patients, potentially, you know, so that's just an example. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's more about the implicit bias that the physician comes into the room with. And this is where a lot of the unintended harm is. We aren't, it's not to say that we are bad people because we have implicit bias. No, it's your human. We all have it. Uh, refusing to acknowledge it is, is not, um, is being harmful. You know, uh, acknowledging it, um, learning about what your implicit biases are so that you can then make that subconscious thought conscious, okay? And realize, I realize when I see a woman I may feel like she is exaggerating her symptoms. That is an unfounded thought. That is not something that I should be thinking. Let me think differently. Or when I see a, uh, you know, a man that X, Y, Z. So if you can let those subconscious thoughts be brought out to the open, you can do something about it. For sure. You just answered my question. I was going to ask you since you took the, uh, the test. How does that change your practice? I mean, that's got to be eye-opening that you you see something and you learn something about yourself that you never knew before uh, that you probably thought, you know, just like you said, well, how can I have a bias, yeah. right? So like, was there anything else that really like changed the way you practice uh, when, you, when you found out this information or you took more tests? I wasn't, I figured I had biases. Like I probably feel more defensive with like, 
older white men, because I feel like maybe they aren't as trusting of me right off the bat, or they maybe be like, well, she, I don't know, you know, so that's probably an implicit bias that I think I, I have, you know what I'm saying? And so my interaction may be a little bit more guarded at first, you know what I'm saying? So that's one thing that I've tried to subconsciously, like, like when I'm in the visit, I'm also part of me is also like an observer, like, okay, Fenwell, what are you saying? How are you saying it? How is your facial expression? How's your body language? You see what I'm saying? But um, with the implicit bias test that I took with the white woman versus black woman, I was shocked that I was, I was like, okay, well, I'm black. I'm a black woman. So yeah. And I was shocked that I was, <laughs> I answered as commonly as probably most of us who take this test that I was, you know, uh, biased against black women. So what it did was I said, you know what? I need to take my black women patients or whatever more seriously when they're talking to me, when I'm, I want to be very diligent. I mean, I mean, that's with any patient, but I think it just made me, just made me listen more. I don't know how to describe it. You just like, just listen more. Um, and, um, and that goes a long way. Yeah. I mean, listening is definitely a huge part of it, uh, especially if you're aware of some of those biases or some of those, uh, one of those um, like hints and keys that you maybe do yourself as you talk about, you look, think about your facial expression, you're thinking about your body language, you're kind of aware of that. So that definitely will help kind of relieve a lot of situations for sure. And potentially maybe rectify some things that maybe like the wrong foot was kind of started off with. You might be able to kind of pull that foot back a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. It's awesome that like you're working so hard to help people find trust in healthcare again. I think that, you know, when you hear about big pharma, I mean, you hear about it on the news and like we deal with it, you know, big pharma a lot, you know, big pharma is kind of some, you know, sometimes they're not your friend. Um, (laughs) So, you know, there's, and there's a lot of bias that people have because now they hear there's a lot more news coming out about PBMs and what they do to customers. And mm-hmm. people are, I think people are starting to open their eyes a little bit more and be like, maybe it's not the providers either mm-hmm. necessarily. Sometimes it's kind of, sometimes like the system that we operate in, but sometimes you have to, I mean, like you have to see a patient for a certain amount of time doing procedures. Like, yeah. you know, there's ways that you have to manage your time in it as well. So I think that there's, it's multifactorial as far as people, you know, either, getting along with the healthcare. And it also, you know, how much do you advocate for yourself? Do you, have you noticed that there's a difference in, you know, racial or cultural differences in how much they advocate for themselves in the healthcare system? Do people just say like, this is the way it is and shut down? I mean, anything that you see as, as far as that goes in your practice? I think empowered people feel more empowered to advocate for yourself. If you don't feel empowered before you walk, you know, walk into my door, you're not going to feel like you can advocate for yourself. And so who are empowered people? Well, empowered people inherently are, you know, <clears throat> are uh, white people, um, white men, you know, because there is some privilege to being a white man. And so those you see uh, individuals more likely to uh, advocate for themselves in that. But I'm seeing, I've seen in, Overall, we're seeing patients overall, I think, feel more empowered to advocate for themselves. Okay. If we looked back 10, 15 years ago, um, you know, it's and we and we compared it to today, I think 
we understand, number one, medicine understands more that this is a partnership between the physician and the patient. Okay. This isn't a, you know, a, a, um, a patriarchy. This isn't me telling you, this is what I have to do. Um, and, and I think two patients are, um, understand the importance of advocating for themselves um, way more than they did um, now. Um, I think some people still struggle with how, but um, again, I think overall patients are more likely to advocate. They they have choices for one. Okay, well, I don't like this person. I didn't, I didn't like the way they made me feel. I felt dismissed. I didn't feel hurt. I'm going to go, I'm going to choose uh, another place. And, and people and patients are really understanding that they um that physicians may they may be good medical doctors but if they don't have good bedside matters that is going to affect their outcomes um so patients are seeking a better relationship with uh, providers that have better bedside manners um so I see most of my patients now uh, more than ever advocating for themselves better, but it's more of the empower, like the level of empowerment that patient feels coming in. Interesting. Yeah. I kind of find a lot of the empowerment, uh, especially has come from not necessarily like an understanding or knowledge base, but at some level you need a little bit of, um, I don't say leeway, but kind of like give and take for it because there are like several ways, you know, the old adage, several ways to skin a cat. There are several ways a lot of providers can go about treating a condition, finding a condition, things like that. And then sometimes it does take that, you know, trial, unfortunately, trial by error mm-hmm. to kind of figure out what it is. Um, so a lot of like, you know, depression is like one of those big ones where there's several avenues for medications, several therapies and several options. And unfortunately, it is one of those ones you do have to find you know, the right therapist. Therapists aren't plug and play. Unfortunately, you have to try many plugs before one can play. And then at that point, they may want to initiate a medication and that can go back, back or forth. Maybe you don't want to, so now it's another therapist. Or if you do, now you got to try which kind. Do you want an SSRI, an SNRI? What kind of profile are you looking for? And uh, I know, especially when it comes to like the veteran population, that being kind of my, my base uh, population is that they're kind of grumpy. They're kind of grumpy turds. Like Mm -hmm. they expect that solution to be pretty quick and they don't realize, and they're not really willing to kind of give you that leeway. They will argue up and down all day about things. They just don't quite grasp that it can't be automatic solution. So yeah, you're coming in, you know, you're having issues with, you know, your penile issues, you're having, you know, enlarged prostate concerns, and it can't just be next day you're good as new and that's unfortunately what they expect um so luckily with as you know talk about the younger generations are kind of a lot more open to this they're a little more understanding and the research online albeit is a lot better for them to kind of kind of go through they're actually definitely coming out to be a little better of a population group um and they're helping that that partnership as you'd mentioned they're understanding they oh this is not the doctor working on me like a car this mm-hmm. is us coming together and we need to be a team including our other uh, medical personnel to kind of come to a solution on that. So uh, luckily we're getting, you know, step-by-step step, each generation is becoming slightly better. Agree. Yeah. We've even noticed um, we do a lot of community outreach, go to car shows, different events, sporting events, things like that. And um, we've noticed that guys are a lot more likely to come up and talk to us about their mental health. That's awesome. Like we That's started awesome. noticing it yeah. probably here about a year ago. 
Um, yeah. We did a car show. One of my friends um, has like a farm and she started doing car shows on it. And there were some guys that came up and they're asking us, you know, oh, what's the podcast, all this stuff about. Mm-hmm. And um, we started talking about mental health and like, oh man, that's awesome. Like such a great resource and things like that. I think we got some listeners off of it, which is pretty cool. Um, but just seeing how men are feeling a little bit more comfortable. And I think there's different avenues out there that are kind of acknowledging men in healthcare and just to be a little bit more proactive about things that really are treatable. I mean, a lot of issues in men's health, if you catch them early, you know, the the turnaround time is much quicker than if you wait for a period of time and now you're dealing with all kinds of stuff. So it's important guys yeah. now catch it. Yeah, early. M- mental health is a really important part of men's health that we, you know, and uh, men's health month that, uh, we need to hone in. And it's, I'm glad to hear that. I too feel like I have seen a better response to my men patient when I suggest they should get therapy, you know, before previously it'd be like, okay, don't be offended. I think I want to refer you to a therapist and, you know, automatically like dismissed and bluffed. Like what, what is that going to do for me? I don't need to talk to somebody now, especially I'm so happy. Like most of the time when I bring it up, they acknowledge that you're probably, yeah, probably, you're probably right. Dr. Millhouse seems like a good idea. You know, they're much more receptive, which I love. Um, It's just creating healthier men um, overall. Healthier men are important for our community, important for your family, for the community at wide. I mean, you know, uh, uh, mentally and and not just physically strong men, but mentally mature and strong men. Um, I, I think it's hella dope. So, yeah. Oh yeah. Men. And then, you know, all you guys out there, you, you got to fill your cup to be able to, and I think a lot more guys really want to be able to be like provide and give and, and do these things. But I think that sometimes mental health and physical health and the issues will kind of catch us up here. And then we're really, I think, you know, a lot of us are stuck up here mm-hmm. and it's not, it's not allowing, you know, general up until recently, like more and more men can now, I think they realize like, you know, self-care is important. Going to the doctor or going to therapy is important. Now I do things that fill my cup so that I can go back out into my community and fill it up. And then, but you also have a place to go back to refill. I think mm-hmm. that's what's important. And so it, it becomes a symbiotic relationship with men. And that's what we're excited to kind of be, hopefully be a part of this tide turning. So men are taking care of better, like better care of themselves. Absolutely. You live longer, um, better husbands, better partners, better, better, better uh, parents, better community leaders, better at work. I mean, I think it's the backbone um, of our community of, uh, locally, globally are men and we need strong, mentally strong, uh, men that can be vulnerable and can, again, like, I like the way you put it, fill up their cup because we all need to have that. We all need that. For sure. So yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're heavy into men's health, obviously based on the podcast nature itself, but like, it's something that I hope a lot of our listeners kind of chime into as well, that it's not just men's health, it's your family self. You know, as you just talked about partners and parents you have your wives your you know your brothers your boyfriends you have your kids sons daughters you have your moms dads uncles you have family all the way around you and 
if you're closed off, if you kind of keep this older mentality, this old school mentality um, that you don't need this kind of help, you can take it and by yourself, you're setting like a precedent. You're kind of putting like a weird vibe onto everything. But if you're being more open, you're seeing your therapist, you're working with your doctor to help solve your problems, you're setting the example, you're showing that there are things you can do to improve yourself. And by improving yourself, you're going to improve your relationships. You're going to improve your parenting style. You're going to have good relationships with your kids where you'll get to live that movie kind of lifestyle where you're growing old and you're seeing your grandchildren, you're seeing, you know, you and your wife are in a tub on a porch overlooking like the mountains for whatever reason because they have porch tubs but like you're building this this family unit this whatever however you may want it to be you get that opportunity to build it because we all kind of think historically you think about the 50s and 60s lifestyle where mm-hmm. um obviously times were very different back then but like the the father is like a always portrayed as like a hard kind of like authoritative figure and the kids won't discuss anything they'll go to their mother first and things like that so we're kind of rewriting how these units are going to be and that first step is making sure that you are taking care of yourself if basically if you want to take good care of your family you need to make sure yourself is also like doing well you're tuned up and you're in that right right mentality yeah couldn't have said it better myself um Very well stated. So Dr. Milhouse, as we wind down a little bit, what is your favorite thing to treat or a favorite procedure or something like that? Because I know you have some OR, you know, clips and things like that. What's your favorite thing to treat? Okay. Uh, One of my favorite procedures in the office is a vasectomy. Um, It's, it's, it's easy. It's, um, I get to uh, play music, talk to the patient. Um, it's just, it's just fun. Uh, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. People are going to be like, why do you think it's fun? I don't know. It's just fun. (laughs) Um, um, one of in the operating room, gosh, there's a lot of things I do that are our favorites. I love, so I don't just have one. I love using a machine called the robot. Robot is a technology we use in medicine to do minimally what we call minimally invasive surgery so instead of opening you up with this big long incision we can do very tiny small cuts and use uh, telescopes um, that are controlled by these robotic arms and we can see it up close into tight spaces into your belly your pelvis wherever um, and see 3d Um, we get to sit down and operate so that's always great like instead of standing up i get to sit down and I get to like look in this thing that shows me inside your body. It's 3D. It's magnified. I'm using this like game controller things, which um, um, knock out any human tremor, uh, meaning my my movements are super smooth. And um, it makes surgery. It makes doing a range of procedures that we do as urologists. We do a lot of procedures in the pelvis. Uh, which can be pretty painful the old-fashioned way. It makes that now a very pleasurable experience. So I love doing robotic procedures. Um, I love doing uh, prosthetic urology. What does that mean? There's a there's two different prosthetic devices that are commonly used in urology. One is an inflatable um, penile prosthesis or IPP, and that is basically um used to get 
an erection used to create a rigid penis. This is for uh, men or individuals, penis owners who have failed other things for erectile dysfunction and nothing's working. And here we, at the end of the day, we can get a, I always tell a patient at the end of the day, we can get a stiff dick, you know, and virtually anybody an IPP is the way it's a surgery that we do to implant this penile inflatable penile prosthesis that inflates. I like doing that. That is, it has a huge success rate and patient satisfaction rate and partner satisfaction rate. So it's really great to be able to restore that in an individual's life. Um, and the, they, they can get a rigid, uh, penis whenever they want, as long as they want you know, like that's totally spontaneous. And then the other prosthesis that I like to do is called an artificial urinary sphincter. And that's where I'm implanting this. It's for men who have incontinence with cough, laugh, sneeze, exercise, run, jumping, something called stress incontinence. And men who have stress incontinence is in the general um, population of men is not as as common, but um, the biggest risk factor for male stress incontinence is having a prostate procedure done. Okay. Um, and I just kind of, uh, hinted to this, uh, you know, a, a radical prostatectomy or surgery for prostate cancer. There is a risk for this stress incontinence from to, to, to develop. And so most of the men that I'm doing it are, are in this category. And so, you know, they beat cancer, they're cancer survivors, but now they're, cancer survivorship is being affected by this new leakage and they're wearing pads and that has does something on your obviously your self-confidence and it's a huge uh huge uh impact on their quality of life and so i get to do this surgery to implant this artificial sphincter it looks like a blood pressure cuff a mini blood pressure cuff that wraps around the urethra and so it squeezes it and keeps it from leaking and then when the patient wants to pee they just push this pump that's in their scrotum that's discreet in their scrotum and it relaxes this this cuff this blood pressure cuff so their urethra can go and then it re-squeezes it so i get to do that surgery and um for many men uh restore a level of dignity that they may have felt that they lost after surviving prostate cancer um or just having incontinence in general it is almost like wild to think about like how much our like male healthcare is wrapped on our egos. It's, it's definitely sad. Like I understand it, but it's definitely sad. Um, but also to kind of iterate your point with the robot arms, that's actually something I'm getting into as well. So um, nuclear pharmacy has two paths. We have low energy, which is called spec. And we have high energy, which is pet. And I do high energy. So we also have like the robotic arms you use to manipulate the radioactive drugs and stuff, just because we cool. need an extra level of safety from yeah. that. And it is something that is really cool. Like if you're if you're used to working in the hood, you have your hands behind leaded glass and you're pulling doses and things like that. It is something different. Just have your hands in these arms and you're just kind of out there <laughs> manipulating these things. So it is it is really cool. So I definitely am fully with you on that. You can't afford to spill a drop. So I guess they said the robot is doing it, not you. So yeah, that's dope. Yeah. That's cool. It's more of we don't want to clean up those drops when they're spilled because it's yeah. people, people yeah. get a little pissed about it. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Well, Dr. Milhouse, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, where can our followers and viewers get a hold of you? Yeah, I love Instagram. That's my main platform on Instagram. I'm Dr. Milhouse, and that's Milhouse with one L, M-I-L-H-O-U-S-E, which I don't know. I don't think that's the way that Milhouse on The Simpsons spells it. No. Um, uh, but yeah, Dr. Milhouse. If you just search your favorite urologist, you'll find me. Um, I am your favorite urologist on TikTok. My other uh, 
favorite avenue. I also do have a YouTube video with um, educational videos just, just about every Wednesday. And that is at Down There Urology. Um, and if you are in and around the Chicago area, or even if you're not, um, and you need a urologist and you want to see me, you can see me. I have my own practice now. Very, very uh, proud of that. I started my own practice with my partner uh, just over six months ago. It's called Down There Urology. Super easy to remember. Um, <laughs> and it is based in the Chicago and surrounding uh, north suburbs of Chicago. So Awesome. Congratulations on the new practice. Thank you. Um, that's a huge deal. So huge, huge deal. Yeah. Awesome. So stuff. Any of our listeners in the Chicago area, you need to go and uh, sign up to get down that patient list there. Yes. <laughs> yep. All right, Dr. Milhouse. Well, it was a pleasure and uh, hopefully we'll have you on soon. You're welcome anytime. Thank you so much for thank your you. insight and, and all your knowledge in urology and, and, uh, and beyond. And thank you for everything you do for all the patients. And then now our listeners. You're welcome. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Cam. I am happy to be back anytime. Awesome.